Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner, conversations from the university. We're here with our friend. Now now you're a friend of the podcast. Awesome. Jonathan, Jonathan Matheson is here from the philosophy department to talk about his new book. And I'm also here with my trusty co-host. Mr. James Hayes. Mr. James Hayes. <laughs> um, so why don't we just start with you telling us the title of your book how you came to write this book. Okay, sure. Uh, so the book is called Why It's Okay Not to Think for Yourself. Um, and part of the reason for that title is it's part of a series um, from Rutledge, the Why It's Okay series. And so there's about, I think, a dozen books now that all have the Why It's Okay, and then they fill it in differently. So there are a lot of fun titles there that people can check out, like Why It's Okay to Like Bad Movies, Why It's Okay to Be a Bad Person, Why It's Okay to... <laughs> Mind Your Own Business, or just some of the other titles. Uh, and mine's about why it's okay not to think for yourself. And what got me thinking about that topic uh, was a number of years ago, I think 2019 uh, or 2018, there was an open letter uh, penned by a number of Ivy League professors to incoming freshmen, uh, giving them advice to what they should what they should, what their university career should look like, and their advice boiled down to uh, think for yourself. And so, in the open letter, they unpacked that a little bit. But the, their number one piece of advice was for students to think for themselves. And upon reading that, uh, something seemed obviously right about that. Uh, I want my students to think for themselves, and that seems like a good piece of advice. Yet something also seemed off or not right or didn't quite sit totally comfortably with me. Um, and that's where I kind of started thinking about this tension between thinking for yourself, there being some valuable good thing there, but also the value of getting things right. And so it's also important to not just get to the answer yourself, but to get to the right answer. And these two seemed in tension to me because many times the best way to get the answer right is not to think for yourself. And so I was kind of gripped by this puzzle, which is how do we reconcile this tension between these two values? Both seem legitimate, good values, but they often seem to come apart. And so that was the puzzle that started the research that ended in a couple papers and things along the way, but then culminated in the, in the book. Yeah. And, and as you're, I mean, we were just talking before, and as you're writing this or around that time that it's finishing up, I imagine, we're in the middle of COVID. Is that yes. about right? Yeah. So I had a sabbatical the semester that COVID happened. And so that's when I was doing most of the research um, for the book. So it started right before COVID, but then, yeah, continued all the way through it. I mean, I bring COVID up because that was one of the contentious ideas that I think we probably all encountered, where people were saying, do your own research. Yeah. Uh, you got to think for yourself about how to handle masks and, you know, whatever else came up. And it was the source of real um, problems when people are thinking for themselves, as you say. And maybe not coming up with the right answer. 
But we also ran into um, the experience of the experts not coming up with the right answer right away. Sure. If I could use right one more time in that sentence. <laughs> but, right, that we sort of had this uh, evidence of how thinking is vulnerable to mm-hmm. misinformation, to miscalculations. And so in real time, we were watching as we're wiping our groceries off. That, <laughs> uh, it probably doesn't matter, right? Yeah, it's not, you know, it's not every day when your epistemology research kind of lines up with front page headlines uh, in the news, Um, but definitely it did uh, in this case, at least explicitly where doing your own research and thinking for yourself was, were buzzwords and being thrown around a lot uh, and happened to be the things that I was thinking about at the same time. Yeah. How timely. How great. Yeah. Well, um, I know this. I'm going to steal James's question. Wow. No, okay, wow. I won't. Okay. But ask him about okay. Ask for yourself. <laughs> ask for yourself. I'm not going to defer to uh, my experts here. I'm going to, because uh, this is my idea, I guess. I don't know. So I want to kind of like, you know, uh, uh, crystallize this a little bit. So your main point is it is just okay to not think for yourself. It is okay to do that. Um, and in the uh, chapter that you sent us, you actually went into defining okay, which I thought was pretty great. Did you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, so, yeah, it is maybe a little bit of a strange way to put it. Um, but basically, my thought is that I want to defend or stick up for people um, who aren't thinking for themselves. And so when I'm arguing that it's okay not to, uh, I guess one thing I'm not saying is that it's bad or always bad or usually bad to think for yourself. I think thinking for yourself can be great, especially when it's done in the right way, in the right confines with the right kind of supports. But so it's not a book against thinking for yourself, um, but it's more propping up the benefits of not thinking for yourself. And so I think maybe one way to put it is that we've overrated thinking for ourselves and I want to kind of shift the balance back. So what I one way to think of that is like I'm giving, not that it's mine to give, but I, I'm, I'm defending the per- permissibility. There's nothing wrong with, nothing inadequate. There's no fault in not thinking for yourself. Whereas I think at least initially when you say that you believe something just because someone else told you so, there's a feeling of uh, at least things being suboptimal or not good or right. it comes with a kind of right. like, shame might be too strong, but this sort of like, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't do my due uh, here, didn't do my own research for sure. And that's where I want to say, it's fine, perfectly okay. Right. That's a fine way to live your life. There's no legitimate criticism um, to be had there. Right. And it's not, you're not saying that it's like always the most optimal way of going about things, but you know, it, it could be totally acceptable. Like, I, I think the way you put it in the book is like, there's no kind of inherent drawback to it. Like there's no like outright negative, like uh, a reason to not think for yourself, which, or am I, am I uh, mixing your words up a little bit? Well, there? I was just trying, there's a lot of negation, so I had to track it all. So there's yeah. no, uh, <laughs> there's no reason, you say no reason not to think for yourself? Well, that it's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it all comes back to that. It's just, okay. it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It's so it's like a, that's just kind of way of thinking. I was like, it's like the Monopoly get out of jail free card. Yeah. You're, you're fine. You got to pass. Um, there's no legitimate criticism. Right. 
Absolutely. Is is that not thinking for yourself different from the Socratic command to not live an unexamined life? Uh, yes, for sure. So, uh, kind of funny story. So w- one day, my o- oldest daughter came home from school and said, uh, "Oh, we talked about a philosopher today." I was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." I think I don't know. This is middle school, maybe early high school, and uh, she was like, "Yeah, he said." Uh, that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, that sounds kind of harsh, don't you think? And uh, I'm on her side, I guess, over Socrates' side, that uh, that is an overly demanding, overly harsh sort of verdict. So, yeah, I feel a little bit unfaithful to the discipline in terms of, like, it's, you know, there's lots of disagreement in philosophy, but, you know, Socrates uh, is definitely a foundational figure. But, yeah, I think that he's wrong there, that it's okay. So if, if Socrates tells you the unexamined life is not worth living, uh, this book's trying to do the opposite. Say, no, it's okay. It's, uh, I'm not examining my life for myself, and that can be fine. Wow, you really are a traitor. <laughs> well, I, I think I was trying to get at something a little different than that. There's thinking... And, and uh, maybe I'm going to push this too far. I already feel it falling apart, my, my argument. But examining and thinking are not exactly the same thing. When I'm thinking about examining my life, I'm considering reflecting on what's happened, reflecting on how I feel, reflecting how I want to be. Is that not slightly different than thinking? And And this would be what I would want to argue that thinking might have to entail um, gathering evidence, gathering new information, you know, that kind of thing that examining reflection doesn't necessarily, it's, it's happened. And yes, you want to then say, do I want to do this over again? Would I do it differently? You're developing character thinking. You're not always developing character. Or, or yeah. assessing values. I think that's fair. So, I mean, I think probably both the thinking and thinking for yourself and the examining both can be unpacked in different ways. And so I, I do think there's going to be ways to unpack them where there's not attention at all. Um, so, for instance, like the way you were thinking about examining, it was perfectly compatible with that, that you are relying on others and hearing what they have to say and incorporating that with your own thoughts. Um, and so I, I think that's good and that that's, uh, I'm not definitely don't want to say anything against that. And I think even thinking for your, even thinking for yourself, you can understand in different ways. Like, so there's a way you could take thinking for yourself where you're doing the thinking, but you're still incorporating the thoughts of others and relying on them. And you're not thinking in isolation by yourself, but you're still doing the thinking and that, that too, that kind of thinking yourself is not the, I guess, not the direct target. Um, my focus is the kind of thinking where you are doing the research yourself, where you're, you're looking at the evidence for yourself, you're evaluating it for yourself. Um, and I guess in contrast to doing that with others and even relying more heavily on others than you are on yourself. Well, what are some of the objections that you've run across to this idea? 
I like that we didn't start off with this because this is where it gets really deep. <laughs> we waited. Uh, well, so, I mean, uh, I don't know. There's a lot. So most of the book is objections because yes. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, there's lots of different angles you can have uh, against the, the main thesis. Maybe one is just, uh, or one initial one is that value of epistemic autonomy. And like we... We value autonomy, uh, you know, it's a strong value. And in the intellectual realm, I think it's just as strong. So we, we want to be in charge of our minds and control how, you know, what goes on in there. And so you can see maybe, the book maybe, as a kind of a challenge. I, yeah. Can I just stop you there? And could you define epistemic autonomy? Well, that's, so that's where I think, the action with the objection comes in because I mean, I, I think what we have to do is be careful in terms of what we mean by epistemic autonomy. And so for the objection to kind of go through, I think epistemic autonomy has to mean something more like intellectual individualism where I'm doing it myself. I'm using my resources. I'm using my evaluation of it. And if that's what epistemic autonomy means, then there is a conflict with um, what I want to defend in the book, but I think that's just not a I mean that's just not a plausible thing to value. Like we, one, we just don't uh, live our lives that way. There's no way for us to do it all on our own, and it's not even better, right? So I, we can do much more and do it better while relying on other people. So I think the kind of individualistic picture of epistemic autonomy isn't the thing that we should value. The account that I put forward in the book is thinking about epistemic autonomy as a kind of good intellectual self-management. So the epistemically autonomous person makes good decisions in their inquiry, when to think for themselves, when to rely more heavily on others. They're a good manager of their intellectual life. That I think is definitely something valuable and worthwhile, but it could, it's compatible with that, that the good way to manage your life is by relying on others a great deal more than relying on yourself. And so that's the picture that I think is the more accurate picture and fits with epistemic autonomy as a value, at least in the way that we should value it. Yeah. And what about the next objection around vulnerability? Yeah. So another objection has to do with making yourself vulnerable or excessively vulnerable by relying on others. So when I'm believing something because someone else told me so, I'm not looking at the reasons myself. I'm not making my own evaluation of it. They can, you know, experts can be wrong. Like, so as you mentioned in the pandemic, experts were wrong about lots of things. Experts are fallible human beings. Experts have biases. Uh, experts have, have limited information, right. limited right. information, limited time. Um, so they have, you know, they're, they're not a perfect, perfect solution. And so the worry and well, I guess, and worse than that, uh, they can be bad players, right? So experts can be manipulative. They can be power hungry. They could be in it for money. They could be, there could be all kinds of sort of like nefarious motivations for them as well. Like, so they're, they're not, they have intellectual shortcomings, but they can also have moral shortcomings. Uh, and so package it all together. They may not be 
um, the best source is the worry of like, shouldn't you protect yourself from that kind of outside manipulation? So I think the, the worry that I have with that sort of view is that one, I think that our sort of intellectual vulnerability, like our vulnerability more generally is just inevitable. Like it would be nice if we could do something to make us invulnerable, I think mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, there's, that's not an option. Like both yeah. physically we're vulnerable, intellectually we're vulnerable, and there's no sort of like proof, uh, proofing us from that. But thinking for yourself, I think isn't is, importantly, isn't a protection to make ourselves less vulnerable. Um, so the one kind of case that I think helps make that clear is thinking about um, self-diagnoses. So your doctor can misdiagnose you when you have some condition, because again, doctors are fallible, they have limited evidence, limited time, all those things. Um, but a good check on your doctor isn't your own medical diagnosis, right? right. So people are very bad at diagnosing themselves or trying to understand um, what medical condition they may have. And so while it's important for there to be checks, I think, on experts, like medical experts, that check shouldn't be your own thinking, right? You're, the way you check your doctor is by getting a second opinion right. by someone else who's an expert, right. not by your neighbor who's a non-expert or yourself who's a non-expert. It's by other experts checking other experts. So I do think that we are inevitably vulnerable, um, but there are things that we can do to try to reduce our vulnerability. But thinking for yourself, I think, often doesn't do that. In fact, it might increase our vulnerability because we're more likely to, uh, you know, to be skewed by our own way of seeing things. Yeah. Because right, we're not conscious to our own biases a lot of the time. So it's like, you know, the, the nefarious doctor who's getting pharmaceutical money, that's a pretty direct bias that you can kind of tell how that would, you know, influence their actions, but your own biases. Well, right. It's, yeah, it's easy. Knows? It's easy to, to see the limitations of the expert, right. but all of those apply to you as a non-expert mm -hmm. and even more so, right? So not only like the, the expert, the medical expert is fallible, but they're still a lot better at interpreting the medical evidence than I am. Like we're both right. fallible, but I'm awful at it They're right. They can be quite good. Right. Um, and yeah, sure. They could be biased could be, I could be biased right. and you know, I'm not very good at detecting my own biases. Um, right. I'm biased to my own bias. And so there's not that sort of easy check on myself that there would be. Right. Right. And that kind of goes into an interesting dichotomy that you set up too between expert and novice. And, um, you know, that we're by and large, all of us are novices and like pretty much everything, you know, yes. um, cause you bring up like, there's always going to be someone who has more expertise than you do in any given field. And, and you kind of lay out this like relativistic, uh, kind of scale here where it's like, you know, um, I might know if when I, in th at Thanksgiving dinner, I might know the most about epistemology out of my whole family, but you know, way more than I do. So it's, you know, like just because I know more than my family doesn't make me an expert necessarily. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's one, thing, which is kind of categorizing people into experts and novices. And there's thinking about who exactly is the expert, what makes them an expert. Those are all, I think, really hard, complicated questions. In some sense, I try to dodge those a bit because whatever it takes exactly to be an expert might be kind of hard to spell out. But I think what's pretty easy to spell out is people who are better and worse at answering a particular question, right? Mm -hmm. So 
who's, you know, what does it take to be an expert on the American Civil War? Okay, maybe a hard question. Right. Can I find people who are better at answering questions about the American Civil War than I am right. pretty easily? Right. I can find people who are worse <laughs> too, like yeah. at least small children, <laughs> or, uh, especially the Canadian ones who don't uh, know as much about American history maybe. Um, but so what matters, I think, from for my project is, can you find someone who's better at that than you are, better, who's more likely to find the answer than you are? Right. And if so, which I think is most of the time, they are a valuable intellectual resource for you. So right. the fact that you can rely on them and their thinking uh, boosts your odds of getting the answer right rather than detracts from them. Right. And baked in there is kind of the assumption that, yeah, the nefarious doctor is less well suited to answer a question about, you know, some medical diagnoses because he is he is biased in a very obvious way compared to the guy who, who's the doctor is going to give you a second opinion who might not have that bias. So he's, you know, has more expertise, quote unquote, um, because he's more apt to answer that question for you. you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't I don't want to say that, you know, it's it's not always so easy to identify right. who the good experts and the bad experts right. are. Um, and so I think we still need some kind of checks and balances right. there. But the important thing is like those checks and balances come from experts themselves, right? The, from, from our perspective as novices, it's too hard to make that determination. So like just to give a different example, uh, an analogy I use kind of throughout the book is with home improvement projects. So suppose I have an electrical problem in my house and, you know, I contact an electrician and they come over and they say a bunch of words that don't make much sense to me and they point to things that I don't know what they're pointing to. Um, so, you know, that electrician could be, um, you know, lying to me or just trying to get my money or whatever else. Right. Uh, and a second electrician might diagnose things completely differently. It's really hard for me from my non-electrician point of view to then figure out who who the real electrician is, who's the imposter, or what's going on. So that I don't want to diminish that that's, there's, a, there's hard questions there, but what I want to kind of insist on more strongly is that needs to be decided by electricians. Like that's, that's our point for having like boards and certification for electricians because electricians can better identify who the real electricians are than I can. I mean, they all sound like they're speaking a foreign language to me. So I can't, right. I, I'm not going to be very good at figuring out who's, who's right and who's wrong. Right. And so we do rely all the time on regulations that are, come down from the state to assess people's abilities and education and all kinds of things. And on the other hand, we are assessing the state as well. Like, is the state really the, the, the people that we trust to make these regulations? And and still you don't know, right? You're yeah. you're left with so much vulnerability to go back to that word, because you're not even sure you can trust those who are um, in charge, um, and yet we rely on them as if we trust them completely, right? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a weird kind of trampoline effect that's going on. We have to trust them. We need to be a little bit skeptical. We don't want to be cynical, but that it, it doesn't always feel great. Yeah, for sure. Being dependent. Yeah. So I think inevitably we have to trust people 
and inevitably we can be let down in trusting them. Um, but we can still have better and worse reasons for trusting some people over others, right? So I think uh, what I want to advocate for is doing our best with the reasons that we have, keeping in mind that they may lead us astray. We could still be wrong, um, but they're often going to point to trusting someone else, right? So going back to the, the doctor case or the electrician case, I, I'm still vulnerable. I, I still could get it wrong, but I shouldn't just like blindly pick someone from the neighborhood to be my electrician or blindly pick someone to be my doctor. I can have better and worse reasons for trusting some people over other people. And then I think do your best with your reasons. But again, yeah, it's no, it's no guarantee. And there's a bit of a bit, there's discomfort there because we, it'd be nice uh, to be able to be certain. But it, yeah, that's not in the cards. Did you look in, in your research, and, and this is probably unfair, and I only got to read <laughs> chapter one, but I'll ask it anyway. Did you look at any of the kind of psychological components of this, these questions? Because it seems to me one of the things that's uncomfortable for us in not thinking about our, for, for ourselves is kind of a psychological problem. Mm -hmm. um, where we feel like we're giving up too much power, right? We're giving up too much of our autonomy in trusting others, just psychologically, not philosophically, mm -hmm. but from that interior place, from that cultural place. And you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. You know, we're taught over and over again, and I think particularly in America, that myth of the rugged individual, mm -hmm. it, it really feels in some ways wrong psychologically to give in to our own vulnerability of not knowing, our own inexpertise. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know that there's also like the desire to feel certain, right? Oh, like that's, that that's yeah. a... But I don't, so I don't deal with any of that in part because I need to stay in my lane. <laughs> so uh, I feel like when it comes to the epistemological issues, I feel comfortable thinking that I have something I can add and say there. But when it comes to the psychological or the empirical issues, then I'm, I'm way out of my depths. I don't know what I'm doing and I, sh I shouldn't rely on my thinking there and I don't want my, the reader of the book to rely on my thinking because I'm not doing anything like what I'm trained or have any expertise in doing. So I didn't do that. I mean, I think there are obviously important questions there, right? And I would trust the psychologist <laughs> to look into that more. And I'm, I mean, I'm yeah. sure that that's, there are all kinds of rich research programs that are doing that. Um, but my, yeah, so but my focus was a narrow one, just, just on the epistemological issue, just on what's the, what's the rational thing um, for you to believe or w when is it okay for you to, to defer? Because that's the question I feel like I'm better off at answering. Again, I, <laughs> I'm still just one, you know, one little epistemologist person, so it's not like I'm coming with, like, the answer to these things either, but I at least feel like I have some standing to make, uh, you know, to add to the discussion on those issues. 
And well, you are asking us to be humble. Right, back. Yeah, yeah. back. Well, not just you. I mean, all of us, me, well, myself included. It's yes. Not, it's not, yeah. You're asking <laughs> us to be humble. And that is a psychological, you know, starting point, um, which so much of, in my opinion, so much of philosophy is going to, and, and thinking about these things come out of our emotional responses. So I'm putting you, I'm trying to put sure. you yeah. back on the hook of yeah. this. This requirement to be humble in our assessment of ourselves and our ability to understand the evidence, to collect the evidence, to assess the evidence, um, is there underlying the premise of it's okay not to think for yourself. Sure. And, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of these questions are, what we might call like hybrid questions that involve answers from different yeah. disciplines and, you know, any real informative answer is going to take all kinds of collaboration across disciplines. So I, I think that's right. I, I don't want to sound like, Oh, whatever the psychologists say is going to not matter at all. Like there, mm -hmm. there could be important insights there. They're just not the ones that I, I feel, I feel like I can assess uh, well, and in terms of like intellectual humility, like that, that has been a focus of a lot of philosophical discussion. And so one of the accounts of that, uh, which I, I kind of like, involves a psychological component, but it's also has a strong like cognitive component of owning your own intellectual limitations. So that involves like recognizing where you're limited, like in terms of your evidence, your ability to process it. And like owning it, so like you know, you 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 identify with it. You don't just you're not in denial about it. Um, it's something that you want to address and improve on. But you you recognize this, these features about yourself, and so those aspects I think are very much like cognitive aspects. So I take part of the psychological question would involve things like how do we develop that, or what what kind of things increase or decrease our propensity to have this sort of disposition and those are questions too like uh i don't know i people are working on that and i think that that would be incredibly helpful information right maybe it's more important than <laughs> identifying like the actual problems or solutions but the the practical how do we get there what what makes us better or worse at um handling these issues but yeah I, those are the ones that i want to set aside for people who are better at answering those questions than, than myself. Right. And, and, you know, before this conversation, before reading your chapter, if you ask me, you know, why, why do we so highly rate autonomy? Like that'd probably be my answer. Like, Oh, well, it's kind of like a cultural thing. And then we get really uncomfortable when we're dependent on other people and all that stuff. Um, and that makes sense to me, but on the kind of philosophy end, going back to your lane, uh, you kind of open up the, you know, chapter that you sent us um, talking about Kant, you talk about Locke and like kind of the enlightenment age. Is there like a genealogy here? Like, can we, can we point to Locke and say, it's all your fault that everyone's thinking for themselves? <laughs> <laughs> Is there something there? Like, I'm, I'm sure you can trace yeah. the gene. I mean, we we're talking about Aristotle a little, a little while ago. So, I mean, you can go even further back, but is there like something you saw in that whole genealogy that says, this is why we're in the situation for like a better term that we're in? Yeah, good. So, I mean, this 
I don't want to be the annoying, uh, those, that's not my question person, but that does strike me as like <laughs> an important, more like historical question, yeah. right? Like yeah, what yeah. are, how do we trace these sort of cultural influences? Like, mm-hmm. so I do think certainly not from my research, but from <laughs> other people that the enlightenment is obviously like the star figure in terms of like, you know, it's on each of us, each of us is responsible to, to take care of all the things. Um, but in terms of like how that captivated our, you know, or became so like culturally, uh, ingrained, uh, I think too. Yeah. Good, good questions, hard questions. Um, and ones that I don't even want to pretend to give an answer to because, uh, you shouldn't trust me on that at all. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying you're a novice. (laughs) Very much a novice. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, can you explain what evidential swamping is? Yes. Uh, so where that comes up in the book is one of the reasons I think we don't have to think for ourselves is because we have this great resource, namely the experts or the community of experts. And what I say there is that the evidence that we get from knowing what the experts think about some issue is so weighty and powerful it's going to entirely outweigh or swamp any evidence you get from your own individual inquiry. So just to take one toy example, uh, just because it's commonly said that like uh, out of the climate scientists, like 98% of them uh, believe that climate change is happening and has human causes. That's a really weighty evidential thing. Once we, once you know that about what climate scientists think that should have a big impact on your belief. Now you might say, well, okay, fine, but I want to think about it for myself. And so in in my understanding, what that would mean is like, you're going to go look at the data yourself and you're going to make your own determinations of what that data supports the like, countless data that I mean, it would be an incredibly impressive enterprise to take on, but then just think about how that might go. So imagine, uh, you, you undertake the research yourself and you come to see it supporting that climate change is happening. Has your evidence like grown? No, you already knew that like 98% of the experts thought this now that you, you added your two cents, that didn't change anything, right? It'd be like, if your neighbor came to you and was like, well, you know what? I've been looking into this climate change thing and I think it's happening. You wouldn't be like, you wouldn't be any more confident that climate change was happening just because this, uh, you know, your neighbor thought so. And if, and if the opposite happened, you looked into it for yourself and you, the way you see it, uh, it's entirely a fiction made up there too. I think, well, what should you believe about climate change? You should believe it's happening still. And why? Because you know about what all the experts believe. And so the idea is no matter how your own individual inquiry is going to go, the weight, the evidential weight of the expert opinion is so strong, your own inquiry is not going to change what you should believe. And so the kind of moral of that argument is if you're, if thinking for yourself is not going to change what you should believe, then you at least don't have to do it. I mean, if you want to, that's what you want to do. Okay. But there's nothing wrong with not doing it. So it's not going to change anything. It's not going to change what you should believe or how, how strongly you should believe it. And, and I think that's uncomfortable because it kind of feels like giving up, right? I think there's a part of us that thinks, well, 
uh, this is not very responsible of me. I'm just going with the, you know, along with everybody else. Yeah. Um, in believing this. And that doesn't feel great, I think, often. It doesn't feel great, but I think... Um, well, because you haven't gained any r real knowledge. I mean, unless you're going to dive into it and be able to assess it and understand it and spout it off. I mean, it, it doesn't feel great to say, okay, well, this is beyond me. I'm out. I'll just, I'll just take their word for it. But, but even if you do all that research, like you're saying, yeah. you're, you're only accomplishing no. so much. Right. Like, yeah. What can I mean, you do? so I think what makes that not feel great, and this may be psychology again, but <laughs> is, is this underlying idea that we can all do all the things and do them all just as well as anybody else can. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves and we're like, Oh, I okay, I, I mean, if I tried to look at the evidence regarding climate change, it would be a total disaster. I mean, I wouldn't be able to make heads or tails out of any of that uh, information. Um, does that make me sad? Sa I mean, a little bit. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be yeah. nice if yeah. I could, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. but you it's, can't. You just you can't do all the things, and that's just going to be one of the things that I can't that do. Right. And that's that okay. And the, here's the good news: someone else can. And yeah. so it's. Uh, I'm not totally out of luck because there's someone else I can rely on to, to get it done. There's one thing that you said to Mary that uh, made me think of something else I say in the book, which is what we can get from other people or for experts. So I, I do think that you can come to know things because of what other people tell you. So you, I can know, I take myself to know that climate change is happening, even though I can't understand any of the data for myself, I know it because I know what the experts think and I have good reason to trust them. But what I can't get from that is understanding, right? So do I have understanding regarding climate change? No, because understanding is not something that you can just be given, right? So to understand something, you have to work through it and see it for yourself. So you have to do some thinking for yourself. So understanding is one of the intellectual goods that I think can only be gotten by thinking for yourself. So that captures part of why we see thinking for yourself as valuable. There's a good reason to do it. It's a chance to understand and understanding is a good, is a, is a great thing to have. But that said, I don't think that gives you a requirement to think for yourself. Even if there's this better thing out there, understanding, it's okay to not have that. So I think it's okay that I don't understand climate change. I don't understand what's going on there. That's okay. I mean, I still have knowledge. I still have a rational belief. Uh, I can't understand all the things. That's one of the things I don't understand. Uh, and that's okay. Yeah, especially when you recognize what you were talking about before, your kind of intellectual limitations. Yeah. Unless you're really good at, at math and you know how these formulas work, assessing all that data is nigh impossible. Yeah. And... Mm -hmm. And, and that kind of goes back to this idea I'm picking up where sometimes thinking for yourself is an unreasonable demand, you know, like not everyone's sure. going to be a climate scientist, you know, right. and, and that's okay. like you're saying, that's okay. I mean, and it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, think about what our society would be like if everyone was a climate scientist. Right. I mean, maybe we'd be really well off in terms of climate science, but we'd be really <laughs> right. bad off in terms of all the other things yeah, that we, we care about. No infrastructure or something like right. that. Who exactly. knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you have in Chapter 6 this idea of the free rider objection. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Because sure. I, I do think that is sort of what I'm thinking about. It doesn't always feel good to be the free rider. I mean, when, yeah. I mean, you hear that term free rider and you think, yeah, that, that's great. You get to go <laughs> along with it. But there are some ways in which it doesn't always feel good to be the free rider. Yeah. Or there's something wrong. So like the yeah, you know the the analogy. That notice I think, I'm putting myself as the free rider because yeah. that's where I'm going to sit most of the time, right? <laughs> Me too. But so I'm the you know what I think an example that helps push that is you can imagine a number of roommates living together and they you know they they have an agreement that they will all kind of like split up the the the, the chores in the house equally, and then there's the one roommate who's just like. Oh, wait for someone. Someone else is gonna do it. I'm just, if I wait long enough, James is gonna James is gonna clean up because he can't stand the mess. And so that's bad. Like that. Like we we think negatively of that roommate. They are a free rider, and there there's a negative assessment that they deserve in light of that. And so the worry there is, aren't I kind of advocating for a kind of intellectual free riding? Oh, the climate scientists are gonna do that, and the doctors are gonna do that, and the Everyone's going to, all the experts are going to do their thing. I'm just going to sit back and just wait for them to deliver the intellectual goods to me. Isn't, isn't this the kind of like the bad, uh, bad kind of free riding? And I think no, uh, because the difference between those two cases is that we don't have an equal responsibility. So in the roommate case, there's kind of like there was this uh, agreement that we're all equally responsible for the cleanup. And so like, then I, I need to do my own share. If I'm not doing my own share, then I'm free riding and doing something bad. But when it comes to the, you know, our intellectual environment, we don't have an equal responsibility to contribute. Right. And it's a good thing that we don't, right. Cause if, if we all had an equal responsibility, there'd be so much noise out there from non-experts like there already is yep. right? yeah, so. like, I mean I think that's what we're dealing with around a lot of these conversations around these wars that are now hot right this minute both Israel and Hamas and the Ukraine in some ways it feels like you should have an opinion on these things right yeah you should have you should choose a side there's right and wrong at stake and on the other hand, it's like there is way too much involved in these events for me to have to try and voice an opinion on it. My, like my opinion is so shaky. Yeah. <laughs> and should be maybe that shaky. Maybe I yeah. should keep my mouth shut. Here. Yeah. I mean, that's my view uh, about those things too. Like it, to me, it seems arrogant to think, well, I've read up on the Israel-Gaza conflict for a couple weeks now, <laughs> and here's my I considered took a judgment. back in 1987. Right. I mean, so on the one hand, you don't want to be, I don't want to, you know, it doesn't mean that you can just be entirely ignorant of everything that's going on. Like, maybe it's important for you to be paying attention, I think, and to be aware of things that are happening. That can be true, I think, without you being able to have your own sort of like reasoned conclusion about all these issues. 
especially when they're incredibly thorny and complex and, you know, re require much more out of any one person than, than we've been able to I invest mean, in it. Even if you go and look at, like, just war theories and you can point to the five ideas, you can maybe assess whether or not you're meeting those criteria. Still is, feels uncomfortable to make those assessments because there's just too much going on yeah. and there's too many variables. And so you're already you on have... team intellectual humility. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, but it, my point was it doesn't feel good not to have an opinion on these, like the, the free ride in a way yeah. I'm like free riding on, I'm counting on the ambassador of the U S to get our point across, to make moral arguments, to, right? And, so, and on some level, that really doesn't feel good. But it's, on the other hand, it's the position you sort of have to take. You can't yeah. have a firm opinion and um, a firm even thought because it's just too much that's at stake. And, I'm, and by the way, I'm deeply grateful I don't have to make these decisions. Yeah, for sure. That, yeah. that would feel really uncomfortable to have to make those. But I, I think a lot of us get pushed. I mean, we've seen in this last couple of weeks on college campuses particularly, and we've seen college presidents having to defend mm -hmm. these actions. It's a lot to ask, right? You're trying to balance free speech. You're trying to, you know, advocate for really painful, weakened, despairing people there's all these things that are going on so um there's some sense in which it's okay to not get it all straight should be a relief to us in some way not it doesn't get you off yeah. the hook for thinking about it i'm not saying yeah, that right but yeah i mean i think it, that's maybe part of the difficulty with I don't want to say culture war, but I'll say culture war where everyone is thought that they need to have an opinion on everything and it's got to be strong, not just, yeah, the, uh, this is too hard for me to figure out. Not that I don't care, not that I don't think it's really important, but uh, I don't know, this is, this is yeah. coming to a considered judgment here involves more than I can bring to the table. And, and, and to further that, I think, to ask the question, is my opinion going to promote anything of value? Right? Is adding my opinion yeah. to the discourse? Right. Well, it gets back to the swamp. That's kind of like the swamping yeah. problem, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, like what do we do about the Middle East? Well, there's this novice Norman who has an idea about that. <laughs> Let's go see what he has. Like, it's great that he has thought about it and cares uh, is a good thing. But, yeah, we shouldn't, I think, realistically think that we have the answers there. I mean, I do think the college campus is the place to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between having a conversation and having a solution, maybe. Is that the distinction I want to make? Or a demand yeah. that we act in a certain way? I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the philosophy motto. Like, you come for the questions and then you probably leave unsatisfied yeah, <laughs> yeah. because what you realize is that the issue is a lot more complicated than what you thought. And 
you lose, I think, that comfort of having a view and having it confidently um, when you appreciate that there are lots of different perspectives, that people who have these different perspectives aren't just crazy or just don't care, but they genuinely see the world in a different way. And it can be really hard to navigate and figure that out. Yeah. Well, let's let's leave it at that happy Well, note. we got one more question. Oh, good. Go, We got Jim. one more question. So it's not going to be how have you ruined dinner. Uh, it's how have you ruined breakfast. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's not it's not a great story, but it's a story, I guess. <laughs> Don't so, predispose us to I'm thinking yeah. it's oversalted. We'll, we'll be oh, the experts in that. Oh, that's funny because it's about that. Uh, uh, so I, I make really good scrambled eggs. I'm pretty proud of them. Um, but on one occasion... I don't know what I did to mess up, uh, but it was involved over salting. So I either the you know the 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 salt shaker thing the wrong I opened the wrong end or it spilled out too too quickly or whatever it is. But I was really hungry for eggs, and I'm also really cheap, and so like I didn't want to I didn't want to throw out the eggs that I had started to make. So my solution was I'll just add more eggs. Uh-huh. And so I will, <laughs> I will reestablish the egg salt equilibrium by not subtracting the salt because that can't be done, but I'll just add more eggs. And so I, I don't remember how many more, but I added a lot more <laughs> eggs. Oh. And uh, did it solve the problem? It did not. It uh, only resulted in there being more uh, wasted eggs and so more unhappy people. Ate them? I mean, I tried <laughs> again because of my stubbornness, but it was it was too oh, much. Yeah, so there's a lesson a, there somewhere. A lesson. I don't I don't know what Cut the lesson losses. is. Cut your losses. None Cut of us are very yeah. good at that, right? Yeah. yeah, that's another uncomfortable situation that you can write a book on. <laughs> it's okay to cut your losses. Yeah, it's okay, it's to, okay cut to cut your, your losses. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. okay to cut. It's your not losses. wasteful. <laughs> Thank you for coming, Jonathan. Thank you. It Thanks for great. having me. It's always fun. Mm-hmm.